Welcome to the Axiom Church Podcast. These are talks and conversations about the centrality of Jesus and his kingdom from our community. Enjoy. <laughs> Good morning. How are you all? Good? Are you, are you awake? Are you alive? Yes? Good. I'm glad. I, I am kind of. I'm kind of alive. Um, I had some coffee, so I feel pretty good overall. I am, if you're wondering right now, if you're new to Axiom, you're wondering right right now, who in the world is this weird person up here making bad jokes? I am, hey, whoa. Uh, (laughs) I'm Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Axiom, some way, somehow. Um, This is going to get really confusing because now we're going to have an elder named Eric, so I think he should be Elder Eric and I'll be Pastor Eric. I think that's how we'll work it. (laughs) Anyway, I'm Pastor Eric. I am uh, one of the many pastors that we have here at Axiom. And I have the privilege of introducing us back into uh, uh, our next series on Acts. For those of you who have been with us at Axiom for the last year, you know earlier this year we began our uh, sermon series on Acts, and we're going to be working through that book over the next few years. We did the first three chapters of Acts, and today we're going to be starting up on chapter four of Acts. Now, one of the things that we did um, during that series is we really encourage people to not look at the screen as much and instead look at their Bibles a little bit more. So I'm going to be keeping with that a little bit today and be annoying and ask you guys to grab a Bible laying around the room, pull it up on your phone, whatever you want to do. If you don't have a Bible, maybe you can raise your hand and somebody can throw one at you. Uh, be careful, the corners are sharp. Uh, <laughs> uh, because I think it's really, uh, it's really good to actually have something tactile sometimes and actually be diving in. And also, you can kind of like look at the context of everything and make sure that I'm not telling you anything totally erroneous. Uh, that's what the great thing is about priesthood of all believers, um, is that we can all kind of speak into this. And at Axiom, we also believe in the community hermeneutic, which means that there's something important about all of community entering into reading of God's Word. So we're not just one voice speaking at you. I'm not coming up here and saying, this is the series on Acts, and there's no other way to think about Acts, all right? This is a conversation, um, and as I preach up here, I would love it if folks come to me afterwards and say, you are totally wrong about this, so please do that. I would love it. Uh, my dad was a lawyer, so I'm really comfortable with arguments. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, I'm going to be starting in Acts 4. uh, verse 1. If you want to follow along with me, I'm going to be reading up through verse 12, and this will get us going here. First, let me have some water because, you know, water's good. All right. The priests and the captains of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the, peop- teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in a jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem Ananias the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. 
By what power or by, by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The word of the Lord. So, some of you might remember prior to this, we saw Peter and John. First, a lot of really kind of crazy things happened, right? In verses in chapters one through three. We of course have Jesus ascending into heaven right before the disciples' very eyes. Then the disciples have a meeting together. And the Holy Spirit shows up there and breaks down the barriers of language so that everyone can be understood. Flames of fire appear on people's heads. More and more people are getting added to the number then of disciples. And then Peter himself delivers uh, a sermon to the community as the Holy Spirit has entered the room. And then after that, Peter and John go out to the streets, take the word, the proclamation, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ out into the streets. But what actually prompts them to engage in what we were describing as some of the first sermons of the church, when Peter and John are out, they actually end up healing a man before an audience. And people receive this pretty well up to that point. But things are going to change with Acts 4. I had a teacher once, he referred to this moment as, uh, his name is Willie Jennings. The, he referred to this moment in chapter 4 when we see the criminal disciple emerge. Because up to this point in Acts, we've actually seen a pretty positive reception of the disciples of Jesus. And now, for the first time, we're going to see a pushback. Sometimes I think that we, uh, we forget how strange, how radical, how other these early disciples of Jesus really were in comparison to the culture that they were stepping into. So that's what I really want to try to emphasize here today, to look at these criminal disciples maybe with the hope that we get a little more clarity about what there is for us here in this text. Because we want to make sure, right, as we've been entering into Acts, we wanted to make sure that we understand that this is not just history, something for those people back then that we don't have to think about, but there's actually relevance for us here, sitting in this room today. That as we look at the actions, the acts and activities of the disciples, we confess that the Holy Spirit of God is offering us today some word on how maybe we can act 
in our own present moment. I had a Catholic friend once tell me, Eric, there's a fine line between religion and cults. And he said, more specifically, between Protestants and cults. And I laughed. I was like, oh, what a Catholic thing of you to say. <laughs> when I was living back in New England, uh, there had actually been a cult that had, we got into this conversation because there had been a cult that actually had recently gotten uncovered. A lot of celebrities had been connected to it. It was called Nexium, the Nexium cult. And it's interesting when you read into cults. I, I, I teach cults a little bit at uh, one of the universities I work with. And what's interesting about cults is we typically feel very comfortable when we attach the label to cult. We feel very comfortable then saying, wow, those people are so crazy. How could these crazy weirdos join a cult? And I remember I watched a documentary once, though, in which folks who are really smart, really well-educated, very wealthy, they ended up joining a cult, and they didn't realize they had joined a cult. They just thought, well, this guy is a really good teacher, so we want to hear his teachings. And we all hang out together all the time already because we listen to this guy's stuff. And so it makes sense that we would buy a house together, and we would all move in together because we're around each other all the time, and we can work from home. And then months later, they look at each other, and they're like, wait, oh my gosh, I think we, I think we joined a cult. <laughs> Most people who get into cults don't realize they're getting into cults, and that's how they get into cults, right? Like, nobody wakes up and says, you know, I'm going to join a cult. That seems like a good thing to do. I bet my family will understand that. They usually say, well, I'm going to join up with a really good teacher, right? Somebody who seems to know something about how the universe works. Now, for us, most cults are characterized by being relatively new. They're novel, right? And a major distinction between cults and religions tends to be that religions have existed for a really long time, or at least more than like 20 years, right? Most religions, organized religions, right? It's funny that my friend, my Catholic friend, thought, that, thought of Protestants as essentially being cults. And again, of course, he would say that, I suppose. He's a Catholic. They are older than Protestants, so that's fair. I remember leaving New Haven then, having this Nexium cult thing kind of circling around in the atmosphere. I remember coming to Axiom for the first time. And I decided I was going to check out this church that was down the road from my house. I remember I walked up, and there were just people wearing shirts that just had this little triangle on it. <laughs> it said, Axiom, create, or create disciples, advance the kingdom. <laughs> I, said, I said, I joked with Kevin later on about it. I said, you have to understand, I wasn't sure what I had just walked into. <laughs> I was imagining that at some point in the sermon, they were going to step forward, create disciples, advance the kingdom, create disciples, advance the kingdom, create disciples. Luckily, that didn't happen. <laughs> in retrospect, though, now that I'm a pastor here, that presents a little bit like a spirit of humility kind of emerges in me. Because I tried to imagine being myself back then, coming into a room right now with people who are talking about these weird things that I've maybe never heard of, stuff about this guy, Jesus, or whatever. 
And as I sit here and I listen, I'm sitting in the room listening to them talk, they're like singing songs to him, this guy who's not here. And then they start talking about eating his body and drinking his blood, which is kind of weird when you think about it. And then they say things like, we're going to talk to this guy together. We're going to fold our hands, close our eyes, bow our heads, and talk to this guy. Oh, and by the way, he's God, and he created the universe. So, (laughs) you want to hang out? (laughs) My point is that I think because Christianity has become so widely accepted in our cultural moment that we forget how weird, we can't step outside of ourselves sometimes and recognize how weird what we're doing really is, right? It's very strange. What I love about this moment in Acts is that if we sit with it and, and process it sincerely, we can't help but recognize how weird this thing actually is. Because why really would you make these disciples into criminals? We just read that these guys got arrested. What is the concern? The tendency tends to, tends to be, I think, we look at these Sadducees and these religious leaders and we say, oh, well, they were just bad people. They were trying to repress the truth, suppress it, keep it down. We have 2,000 years on these folks, right? 2,000 years of understanding, of back padding, could I say? And that changes the dynamic of the thing, I think. So I want to spend some time diving a little bit, a little deep here, because in this passage, we see, if I may dare say, the the disciples of Jesus running into what we might call the real world. The world as it stood prior to Jesus's entry, the established society, the one that is the one society that had every reason, every good reason, might I say, to resist the disciples. In this passage, we first see that those people who were student followers of Jesus, we see a kind of full commitment to them, a relinquishing of the illusions that the power of the world will somehow love you that they will be supportive of you, that they will think that you're the cat's, the cat's pajamas, the bee's knees. That instead, the disciples accept that they're going to be otherized and condemned. That the normal, acceptable world, the world that will say, you did a good job, pal, they are not going to be on your side. It accepts that reality and still proclaims the truth in love and in spirit. And what's more, it accepts that this is not a resistance that comes. Or I should say it is a resistance that comes from a world that in some level is quite reasonable and thoughtful That is normal. 
I want us to make sure as we look through here, as we walk through the passage, that we understand that the normal world has every reason to resist this movement. That it is normal for the ways of Jesus to seem a little weird. A little wacko, if I could use that word. Because in relationship to the established order, the established social world, I think we need to recapture an awareness of this weird and foolish Christian faith. And if we approach this passage with the eyes of understanding and not with our insider Christianish jargon and assumptions, we will see the reason, reasonableness of the powers that be, that the cross and Jesus are not reasonable things. See, Christians at that time were awed and disruptive. They were a force of disquiet. They disquieted the safe, peaceful world of Pax Romana, of Roman peace. It might be helpful as you think about Peter and John to think of the weirdest street preacher conspiracy theorist that you know. And that's Peter and John. And what I mean by that is not necessarily what the conspiracy theorist is saying, but how you feel towards the conspiracy theorist. Whoa. <laughs> okay, that's great. And also maybe a little nervous and concerned. Because I got friends and family who are listening to this guy and starting to follow him. They don't see it as a cult, but golly, kind of smells like a cult to me. We have to remember that when early Roman rulers in the first century wrote about Christians, the major alarms that they had when, in their letters when they were writing were, these weird people go down into catacombs, they chant, they talk about drinking blood and eating human flesh, and they worship a dead criminal. That's kind of scary. The Sadducees, the rulers of the temple that we read about in Acts 4, the rulers, the elders, the teachers, they have good reasons to be alarmed. The Sadducees have good reason to be alarmed. They were the people who were entrusted with keeping, to some extent, people safe. Safe spiritually, religiously, but also socially. We're talking about having guards. Sadducees, members of the elite established order, they were the ones who were brought on because they were the ones who were supposed to have vision and ability to see and to speak into people's lives. And if we say, if we sit here and we say, oh my gosh, I can't believe they threw him into jail, as we read in, uh, in verse, verse 3, they threw him into jail. They seized them and threw him into jail. We might pause before we overreact and say, how dare they do that? 
and think to ourselves, well, at the time, messianic, messianic revolutionary movements were a dime a dozen. The reason why these leaders were on such high alert is because there hadn't been many people coming along saying that they were this Messiah. A Messiah was a, re- was, a, was a leader that was supposed to come in and liberate the Jewish people from Roman control. And now you had these people who said this dead criminal was the Messiah who had come and that they were starting a new kingdom through him. If you are the Sadducees and religious leaders, you are alarmed by this. And so, as we see them throwing them into jail, we need to know that they have their eyes out for manipulative revolutionaries. Because we read that Peter and John are not just, they're not just healing people, which is already weird enough when you think about it, laying hands on somebody and, oh, they have magic powers apparently, they can heal people. But they're teaching, we read. They are greatly disturbed, we read in verse 2, that is the leaders, the captains and priests, And the Sadducees are greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus, their leader, the resurrection from the dead. They were changing people. Because that's in some ways what teaching does. You're filling people's heads with a new kind of content about how the world works. They didn't know what math was, and now you teach them math, and now they know how math works. They are teaching, and this disturbs the leaders. Because they're not just teaching that this dead guy is their leader, they're teaching that this dead guy actually came back from the dead. And what's more, we read, many, in verse 4, many who heard the message believed so that the numbers of men who believed grew to about 5,000. That's one effective cult. If that weird conspiracy theorist that you knew came into town, started walking around in downtown Phoenix, and 5,000 people were suddenly joining up with this person, would you be alarmed? (laughs) I'd be a little alarmed. I can say that because sitting here today, we in the room are, in a way, part of the established order. Positionally, we are what is comfortable in America. We are how it's been. We would be alarmed. So when the next day the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law, we read in verse 5, and then in verse 6, Ananias the high priest was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others from the high priest's family, we should know 
that the most respected people in that community now are the ones who are questioning Peter and John, who are particularly alarmed by what Peter and John are doing. They had brought Peter and the, they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. And maybe quite reasonably ask, by what power or what name do you do this? Okay, you're healing people, and now you're teaching people that this criminal Jesus rose from the dead. By what power, but by what right, by what authority do you do this? By what power do you incite a mob? How dare you? Do you know what risk this could bring to our community? But then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for acts of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth who you crucified and whom God raised from the dead. This man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Now, although these religious leaders, the authorities, the normal ones, might think that these two guys are crazy, we, the reader, are let in on a little bit of a secret. They are not crazy. They are not inciting a mob. Because Peter speaks being filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that had descended on the community of Jesus' followers that Jesus himself had earlier promised that he would send. He is filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And he proclaims why and how he was able to make the lame walk. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the man who you crucified and then who God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. And he does something beyond proclaiming the name. He references back then to Psalm 118, 50, uh, verse, uh, verse 15, the stone, the phrase, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone, oftentimes was referring to the Messiah. So Jesus is being affirmed here as being messianic. But beyond that, God, the creator of all things, raised this man from the universe. Now, that, that's wild enough, and I'm sure the leaders were a little shocked to hear that their God, the God of the Sadducees and the religious leaders, that they, that he has raised Jesus from the dead. But then we get to the truly radical statement here. In verse 12, because salvation, Peter proclaims, is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we might be saved. Beyond the traditional messianic view, which was that the Messiah would be a military leader, a king who would come and save the Israelites politically and be their religious leader, 
Jesus is now being described as the only name under which human beings will be saved. Jesus is the only name under heaven given by which humans may be saved. That is a God statement right there. Who else can save truly but God? And so for him to stand there before normal society, the people who had the presuppositions, the preconceptions of what God was, Peter stands there, and he has no, he has no delusions about who he's standing before. He stands before all that is normal, acceptable, charming, safe, and established. And he says in love the truth. Because Jesus didn't care in that moment about seeming socially acceptable, about seeming normal, about seeming cool. He was the weird conspiracy theorist guy that we all roll our eyes at. And he says, this guy who died, he came back from the dead. And he's God and he's here to save everybody. He is the name by which people will be saved. And we hear that and we say, yeah, of course. But that was so weird. So weird to hear. And so if there's one thing I would like us to take away from this, this sermon, from what we're seeing here with Peter and John, is that maybe as disciples, we could stand to embrace the odd a little bit more, to be willing to not be normal. And what I mean by that is not be not normal in like a kind of cool, aloof, hipster way, but what if, what if you were so filled with the love of Christ and his Holy Spirit that normal people actually thought that there was something kind of like weird about you? Wouldn't that be interesting? That you were so committed to the Jesus way that you seemed a little weird. I think that that could change something in our moment right now. Not that we become weird in the way that we're gonna be mean and disruptive in an unnecessary way, but in a way that we recognize the love, the true love of Christ, the true message of what Jesus, who Jesus is, is going to be necessarily a little bit disruptive to the things that the established order thinks is comfortable, neat, and clean. I don't know. It could be kind of fun. It could be an adventure. Can't wait to see where the disciples go from here. Won't you pray with me here? Lord Jesus, we thank you that uh, 
you've called us to be a little disruptive, Lord. May we leave this morning today not seeking to be people who just want to throw, throw tables over just to throw tables over, Lord. But we throw over tables because we're so filled with your love and desire to see people saved, to see people come to you, to experience the fullness of your transformative love, Lord, that we are willing to take that risk to seem a little odd, to be a little disturbing, Lord. We lift this up to you in your name. Amen. We're about to enter into a Thanks again for listening to the Axiom Church podcast. If you'd like to participate in the generosity of this community, you can give um, on our website under the link give. Also, if you'd like to connect with somebody on our team, you can fill out the connect form on our website under the link connect.